Hey Hoops Heads, it's Alexander J, the host of Daily NBA with Alexander J and the NBA show here on the Mojo Sports Network. Bit of a streamlined show today as we start to enter the holiday period. Jules is out with a function. Our international correspondent Tom Devers just returned from his overseas NBA trip and is recovering. And Jack Brophy is commentating some basketball games in Victoria today. So today's show is a quick 30 minutes between myself and Yuri Bilsic on our thoughts on the in-season tournament finale. A really good game. That was the best Anthony Davis game I've ever seen. Then I proposed some wild Zion Williamson trades. And I 100% acknowledge that it's way too early for this kind of trade slander. But if we can't have some fun here, what are we really doing? And then Yuri and I chat about the Brooklyn Nets, who are currently two games back of fifth in the East. And we ask each other if they can be the next team up, kind of like the Indiana Pacers have been to start this season. As always, if you dig our content, please leave a five-star rating. And you can find links to all of our stuff in the show notes. Should be back to a normal show next week. On to this week's show. Right, I'm here with Yuri. This is 2.52 p.m. on the east coast of Australia, so it's probably about 15 minutes since the end of the in-season tournament final, the inaugural final between the Lakers and the Indiana Pacers. For our instant reacts, Yuri and I are just going to go off the top of the dome with some stats and observations we saw. Uh, Just quickly to set the table for you, Yuri, this entire tournament has been great. Um, I was lukewarm on the idea, but from the courts to the appointment viewing on uh, what was the Wednesdays and Saturdays here in Australia, the Tuesdays, Fridays internationally, um, and the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals in uh, Las Vegas, the quarterfinals, not sorry. Six of these seven games in the final series have been great. I think the tournament is a success. Um, we just watched the best AD game I've seen since the Lakers went on their championship run in 2020. Uh, the crowd seems into it. Uh, you know, sometimes you think a, a game not in front of either team's home crowd, it's the Lakers, seems like it's a home crowd because it's in Las Vegas, but uh, that was great. So full praise to Adam Silva. I'd love to see this again next year. I think they're going to tweak it a little bit. Uh, very quickly, give me your thoughts on the tournament as a whole before we move into what was a dominant performance from Anthony Davis. Yeah, Alex, great to be here and thank you for having me. And yeah, just the whole tournament as you mentioned, you've just absolutely broke it down perfectly. It is a success considering the amount of not just motivation for the players, but I think the league was looking into it for some time with Adam Silver and his inspiration with the Euro Leagues, especially in Europe as well, and how they formulate their knockout tournaments to bring a little bit more excitement to the league. And I think definitely as we have touched on countless times in the last probably two, three weeks that they needed just a little bit of an extra kick up considering that late November through December is pretty much a bit of a lull period where I think teams sort of go a bit laissez-faire in the way and just sort of take a back seat and expect results to come their way. And it isn't until essentially what, after the All-Star break in late February and then March where teams all of a sudden realise that They've got to start winning games, especially if you're if you're two, three games back from the playing tournament along those lines. But as a whole, too, you mentioned about the courts as well. Some of the court designs were pretty cool, though, in the tournament. They were. The, the, the one they used in Vegas, I wasn't a fan of. It's the, the red is really difficult for whatever reason. The red courts, we saw them in a few places. They're the ones I don't like, but there was a beautiful baby blue in Minnesota. There was a couple of nice sky blues in Oklahoma. Um, some of the courts were quite nice, so I'm glad that... I didn't hate all of them. You know, that's you're flicking across the channel and you go, what the hell is on the floor? But then you realize it's okay. The one in New York was interesting. Um, it's an orange court and, you know, it's an orange basketball. So sometimes that was a bit tough to see. Let's dig straight into the first 
ever in season tournament champions. The Los Angeles Lakers win 123 to 109. It was a lot closer than that for uh, 45 minutes of this contest. The difference was a 13-0 run to the Lakers when there was about three or four minutes left. Um, happened to be right after Miles Turner fouled out. Anthony Davis was dominant in this game. I want to start with him. This was... It might have been the best Anthony Davis performance I've ever seen. It's certainly the best since the championship run where they won the title in the uh, COVID bubble in 2020. He finished with, uh, I've got my stats somewhere in front of me, 40 points, 20 rebounds, five assists, only four blocks. It felt like he had a lot more than four. He was affecting everything under the rim. And he finished shooting 66% from the floor. Um, He was a menace in the pen on offense, but also on defense. Indiana's game plan over this first part of the season has been at the rim or from three-point land. They shot poorly from three-point land, so trying to get everything at the rim, and he was just affecting everything. There was almost no second-chance points. Uh, so a round of applause for Anthony Davis. He didn't win MVP of the tournament. That went to uh, LeBron James. Adam Silver just remarking before we jumped on the call that, unfortunately, it doesn't come with a franchise, uh, which I thought was quite a funny remark as um, LeBron James has made it known he wants to own a team in Las Vegas. Uh, all of... The 26 made baskets from Anthony Davis and uh, LeBron James were in the paints. Like, this was a clear game plan to go in the undersized Indiana paces. Miles Turner, I thought, did an admirable job until he got fouled out. A couple of ticky tack falls, I thought. Um, and I mean, if I was a coach, this is the thing I would have done too. I spoke to my only pacer friend yesterday and I said, Do you got any more big guys hiding on the bench? Like, since you traded Gogo Batazi, have you got anyone else hiding that's not named Obi Toppin who can play the five in a pinch? And he said no. And I went, mm, okay, I think the Lakers might just try and dominate on the inside. Um, talk to me about what you saw in this game, how you feel. Do you think the Lakers can be a championship contender now? Obviously, we don't get games like that from Anthony Davis every night, but geez, what a performance. It was an incredible performance, Alex. That was his fourth 40-point, 20-point, 20 20-rebound 20 game for his career. We've seen many phenomenal games from AD, especially during his time at the Lakers last season. He had that monster 55-point game against the Washington Wizards in early December. And say that was by far one of his best games for Lakers that season alone. But to do what he did right, right from the outset as well and really bully Miles Turner, who's an absolutely sensational shot block as well. He averages two, three shot blocks a game and him basically altering him and using sort of just powering his way in the paint, especially those low post opportunities where he was just able to create enough separation to the point where Miles had to basically put his arms up as though just to not to foul. But unfortunately, Davis kept doing that continuously every single time that the Lakers ran a play for him on the block, and he just went to work on Turner. And that was really the hard part, I think, for the Pacers was just Miles being in foul trouble as well right throughout the game as well. And I think it would have been nice if they had utilised Jalen Smith, I think, a bit more to play on AD, just something to combat his influence. But apart from that, their points in the paint domination right throughout the game was just it was scintillating, 86 points in the paint as well. You think last season, the Nuggets had 98, which pretty sure was a record in NBA history. That was against the Washington Wizards in December last year. I think a December 15 matchup between the two teams. So just back with AD, and this is really funny, right? Because Darvin Hammond, at the start of the season, was basically saying that, oh, we're going to make Davis attempt six three-pointers a game. But remember right back to like his Pelicans days where he was shooting a ton of threes, Maybe not a ton of threes, maybe three to four three-point attempts per game, depending on how then coach Alvin Gentry and especially Gentry ran the offense. But 
as sort of last season went by, especially that second half after the All-Star break, and they put him more operatively and effectively down low to where he does his best work. And that's where the real recipe of success really came from for the Lakers as well, apart from those trades, of course. But that's where it was going to be the big sort of key today for the Lakers was that they always they thrive in the paint. They don't take a ton of threes. And even today, right, they only took 13 and only made two of them. And I think they missed their first, what, 10 three-point attempts? Ten of them, so yeah. Took, yeah, 10 of them. They only the took first six one came th- at the end of the third quarter. Yeah, it was really quite surprising. <laughs> I think it was Torian Prince, I think, that knocked down the Lakers' first three. So... No, that was their whole emphasis right throughout this game was just continuously attack the paint. The paces are pretty thin on the front line end and it's all really sort of paid off and there was something that I think they could have ran maybe a few more double teams perhaps as well and AD and forced him to kick it out even though Davis is a good passer and try and make the Lakers try and beat them from deep because Indiana only shot, what, 10 or 41 from downtown, which is about 24-point-something percent. So Yeah, and they, that was that the difference they, they usually average 45%-ish from distance. So that's what I mean when Indiana, uh, they shoot threes or get to the rim. The shot wasn't falling, and I was trying to figure out if it was like the extra defense from, you know, lengthy Tory and Prince or Jared Vanderbilt, what was happening, were they switching? Couldn't really figure it out through three quarters, but it did stifle their impact to get to the rim. About, I think it was midway through the second, you start to see some mid-range jump shots from like, um, is it TJ McConnell? And you never see that from Indiana. You never see Halliburton pulling up from 11 feet because that's not their game plan. And they kind of had to adjust on the fly. Um, it was interesting at the time. The difference for me, and I'd be interesting to see if you caught this too, um, Anthony Davis blocked, um, TJ McConnell was cutting on a fast break. With about six minutes to go in the fourth quarter, uh, Lakers get a bucket down the other end and the camera cuts back to Anthony Davis who had the biggest mean mug I've ever seen on him. Like, he was locked in. He was a dog. He was angry. He was snarling. And this was with six minutes to go. It's a five-point game. And I went, no, no, the Lakers are going to win this. There is no way that man is giving up. And, you know, sometimes with AD, he doesn't give up, but he's not always effectual. And I thought that was the clear difference. I saw that and just went, it's over for Indiana. And unfortunately, it was. Uh, Austin Reeves was also an underrated point. He had 28 points off the bench. He got 12 Attempts at the line, make 10 of them um, when they needed some late. LeBron James finishes with 24 points, 11 rebounds. Uh, anyone else, or do you want to talk about those two for the Lakers before we move on to what looked okay from Indiana? Yeah, Reeves' production, your spot on again, Alex, was huge in that first half alone where I think he had, what, 22 first half points and made a number of excellent layups in traffic. And they did try to really push the pace at times, to the Lakers, which normally isn't in their ammo, and that's normally India's, Indiana, shall I say, strength, is really pushing the ball up-tempo and getting shots up within 16, 17 seconds left on the shot clock. So the Lakers did play with that strategy early on, but after the game sort of at various points slowed down, not all the time, that they went down low. Of course, it was, we've mentioned with Anthony Davis doing his work inside that it really was super efficient. And I think ever since the Lakers and Coach Darvinham did make that move sort of late last month on shifting Reeves to the bench and starting Cam Reddish in his spot, I think it's really given them that extra sort of stability with the defense as well, but also mix and match it with the offense of Reeves. So I think that you don't lose anything by making that move whatsoever because I think Cam's offense, since he got drafted with the 10th overall pick back in 2019, it has been there in spades as well, but everyone well knows that he's a perimeter defender first. If he does his job 
on that end, it makes life so much easier, right? For guys like D'Angelo Russell, where teams will obviously try and hunt him on switches. And that's where watching today's game, right, the Pacers probably didn't do enough of that in a sense too, trying to go hard at D'Lo and try and get him into foul trouble, even though we saw last season, right, where I think he was sort of, he didn't complain in a way, but he was sort of a bit disappointed that his minutes were reduced. And probably the reason why is because teams went flat sticks at trying to target him every single time. So I think that's changed now for the Lakers because we saw D'Lo play those minutes down the stretch as well until the, what, the final minute 10, minute 15, when both coaches decided to clear the benches and basically bring on, what, their third stringers on to finish off the game. So, yeah, just in that regard, there's no sort of additional subtraction minus whatever with having Reeves come off the bench with the second unit. I think it just only adds more additional offensive firepower for Lakers, Alex. Uh, speaking of Lakers, you know, I should say speaking of Indiana, all I want to talk about is they were never gone until about three minutes remaining. The Miles Turner, uh, it, not ejection, him fouling out late, seemed to be the turning point. I mean, the Lakers took the lead early, like two or three minutes into the game. But repeatedly, the Pacers brought it back to one, two, three, four points. If you look at the, the game chart, it's a thing line until there's three or four minutes remaining. Um, a lot of that was because of Tyrese Halliburton. He was getting almost triple teamed at points, like double teamed at the top. Depending on the rotation, there'd be three bodies in front of him. He finished with 20 points, 11 assists. Probably didn't shoot enough. It was quite an efficient night for him. Um, passing lanes were a bit iffy for him. I spoke about Miles Turner. He did an admirable job. The the Pacers got points from Neesmith and Matt Durant. Um, everybody not named Buddy Heald played okay, but he missed a couple of shots that, you know, at times would have put them equal or a point back. Anyone else from Indiana you want to shout out before we move on to a couple other stories from around the league? Yeah, just the one with Halliburton, Alex, and you're absolutely spot on once again too. The amount of double team and triple teaming they did on him as well, especially with Jared Vanderbilt at various points, was a real sort of factor in trying to sort of slow down India's offense and especially if they could get them into the half court, which they did quite a bit of the fair time as well and the Pacers made a bunch of tough shots along the way. But that was certainly one game plan that paid off and I think this is the only probably leeway that Halliburton had throughout the game was during, I think it was the first half where sort of I think I think Vanderbilt overcommitted on one play as well on the left wing and Halliburton was able to get by him just enough, about two or three steps in front of him and drive through for an uncontested layup. But that was really out of all his shots that he was able to generate as well, Alex, and the ones they did make, that was by far the easiest. But the Lakers just did another incredible job on him and just trying to really minimize his production as best as possible. And we saw like even Bruce Brown, he played 19 minutes, right? He barely played in that second half. And I think Obi Toppin played 29 minutes as well. And he was basically the, what, the center when Miles Turner fouled out in the last three minutes of the game and sort of that was a bit fate and complete. So that was something just to really sort of talk base on as well with Halliburton because right throughout this season, right, like teams sort of haven't gone super hard on trying to take the ball out of his hands and perhaps make a Buddy Hill a facilitator or, even probably even Bruce Brown, who's known at times for his facilitating anyway, especially with the Denver Nuggets last season, right? So it was a little bit of a change-up, which I think it was good that the Lakers really came in with that strategy. And perhaps even other teams may follow suit too to try and really slow the paces down to the point where they're going to have to take rush shots within like the final 10 seconds of the shot clock where it comes 
down to a contested shot or maybe a shot in traffic from, say, 10, 15 feet out. I wanted to get you on the show today to talk about a couple of teams that I'm not really sure what to think about. And you and I have talked offline during the week in the last couple of weeks about um, the Brooklyn Nets and the New Orleans Pelicans. At the top, I mentioned that six of the seven games in the quarter semis and finals of the in-season tournament were good games. The one that wasn't was a Pelicans getting blown out by the Lakers 40-something points. It was never close after halftime. The Pels are 12 and 11, so they're over 500 in the Western Conference, but it's only good for 10th. That's how stacked that conference is. Uh, they're middle of the road in points per game, rebounds, assists. Uh, most of the advanced metrics have them being, eh, some of their shooting stats are okay, particularly the splits depending on who's on the floor with Trey Mercury third, etc. The Pelicans are kind of in this interesting spot to me, and I know that um, through NBA media and you know some podcasts and other, if you can't listen to everything, you might start to hear whispers that Zion is... Uh, one out of shape, two not committed to the franchise, and three, it's a chemistry problem. If you watch the Pelicans play, whenever I watch, uh, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson do have a weird chemistry. Whenever they're on the stand together, they kind of just they don't seem like they're buds. The body language doctor in me is going, there's something going on here. There's, I'm not saying that they should trade Zion Williamson. All I'm saying is if you were going to trade Zion, this might be the right time to do it. You've got interesting and there's a lot of depth in this Pelicans team if you don't pay attention. So like listing it off, who you've got CJ McCollum, former R-Star. You've got Herb Jones as a defensive menace. Najee Marshall, casual fans might not know. The Australian Daniel uh, Dyson Daniels, who's been starting. Uh, rookie Kira Lewis Jr.'s look good. Jose Alvarado's a menace. Jonas Valanciunas is like a traditional big man center who crushes it. Larry Nance Jr. Uh, he's been around the league. Great defender, lengthy, been injured a little bit. Rookie Jordan Hawkins, it's good for 20 points a game all of a sudden. Uh, Trey Murphy the third. There's guys I haven't even spoken of, like Jeremiah Robinson Earl. It's a deep team with a lot of shooters. But they can't kind of figure out what to do with this Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. You know, two tent pole offenses play very different. There's no overlap there. But something isn't right with New Orleans. I don't know what that something is, but I've got three trades lined up that I'm going to run by. So quickly, your thoughts on the Pelicans, and then I'll get your thoughts on these three trades I've vetted through the trade machine. I think more to fact with consistency, Alex, too. So the Pels are, what, eight and four at home. They're four and seven away from the Smoothie King Centre. And having been lucky enough to watch most of their games right on a daily basis, it's you can tell the difference when they're really switched on defensively. Even the game against the Sacramento Kings a couple of weeks ago, which they absolutely blew them out of the water. You know, I think it was a second, first meeting of two nights. They had a, a, sort of a back-to-back the two teams, right? And they won 129-93. And that third quarter alone was by far the best Pelicans defense that has been played since, well, maybe the 2017-18 season, perhaps, when Drew, DeMarcus Cousins, and AD were all in that team. And they absolutely shut down opponents, especially the Portland Trailblazers in that first-round playoff series. So back with the Pels as well, that is the big thing that really separates them at their best compared to their worst. And that's where the sort of the disparaging differences between the elite and then sort of where they're really off the ball as well. And they give you up points in the paint and wide open threes. It's where it really catches them out because offensively, they're going to be fine. And I think Antonio Daniels, who's the color commentator for the Pelicans for their for their TV section as well with the long-time NBA play-by-play broadcaster, Joel Myers, they keep talking about this as well, especially Antonio. 
where defensively, if they stick to it every single time on every single possession and not let up, then they can match it with the best in the West. But again, we've seen other games this season, right, where they've just completely have leaked points like a sieve. Even the Denver Nuggets game, right, about, I think it was two, three weeks ago when I had a 20-point lead in the first half and they were playing so well on the defensive end and then all of a sudden they give up, what, 70, 75 second-half points and get overrun. Like, it's just totally inexcusable. And even in the game against the Knicks, I think it was the second or third game of the season the Pels played. They only gave up their season low 87 points, Alex. So on those nights, right, where they can absolutely shut teams down, then they're going to be absolutely good. And as well with the Zion, B.I. and Jonas Valanciunas, you know, with the front court right there, they've been able to at least run some more sort of action with all three as well, whether it's B.I. with the ball and Valanciunas setting the high screen and B.I. getting to, say, 17 to 15 feet out and pulling up for his usual mid-range jumper. That's been a great offensive ploy that the Perkins have been able to utilize. And even Zion at this season as well. He's had some good assist numbers as well. I think there was one game where he had about seven or eight assists, which is pretty damn hard for a player who only averages, what, one and a half to two assists per yeah. game in his <laughs> career. So it's completely different right on that end. I think it's good because if they can be at least a little bit unpredictable with the ball and not be like, oh, Zion, you go one-on-one with your opponent, right? Like, say if it's maybe they have a switch and they Say this is a game against the Grizzlies. This is only a hypothetical. But they have a switch right. It's like, oh, you go one-on-one with David Roddy 10 feet out from the basket. But then Zion will be like, oh, I'll try and make a kick-out pass to, say, Trey Murphy on the wing. Like, run a play where it is completely unpredictable to the opposition where they absolutely have no clue on their scouting report. And I think the Pels are just able to do that a little bit more, Alex, then it's going to bring such a vast array of different combinations that they can run with as well. And I think it's a very good thing for the Pels, even though they're only one game above 500, right, and getting absolutely blown out the water. Their worst loss this season to the Lakers to the tune of 44 points. Can I see anything but upside as well? Because look at the amount of perimeter defenders they've got, Alex, though. Well, it's interesting. it's interesting you mention that because when I've got these the trade candidates, I the whole frame around me trying to trade Zion Williamson away is, I don't think he can win with what's going on. I'm not trying to reset the Pelicans. I think I've seen enough of Brandon Ingram, particularly at the last, end of last year, where he can lead a really good team, maybe not a championship team, but if you're trying to get a good team, Brandon Ingram can lead that. The other thing is the New Orleans Pelicans are one of two teams in the league who have never paid the luxury tax. Next year, they're right up against it with eight roster spots still open. So this is... Maybe a front office decision that's looming. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets, for those interested, is the other team that's never paid the luxury tax. It'll be about 170 million next year, and they're at 150 million with only nine players committed next year. So I'm thinking future term, the Pelicans want to stay good. They have great defenders like Najee Marshall and Herb Jones, but unless they go into the luxury tax, they're going to have to make a move. I think you get more for Zion than you do for Brendan Ingram. I don't think it's worth sending away any of the other pieces. So I'll read out my three trades I've got for you. You let me know if it meets some level of, okay, that makes sense. Maybe I don't want to do it, but it makes sense. Yep. The first one, Zion Williamson straight up for Zach Levine from the Bulls. Oh, yeah. Shooting is... into the Pelicans, it's a reset for the Bulls. Yeah, I think it would be a good one for Chicago, but for the Pels as well, yeah, you, you could go down that path as well, but. The only problem is, though, Alex, Levine's got that massive deal 
Yep. And he's still got three years to run as well. And they're basically 47, 48, 49 million dollars respectively per season. Is that the risk that you do want to run with the for the Pelicans, even though Levine does take five to six three-point attempts per game, and the Pelicans aren't a high three-point volume shooting team, shall I say, as well, apart from CJ McCollum and Trey Murphy that we talked about too for the Pelican season preview earlier on, right? So that's sort of the sort of the conundrum I think that they do have to weigh up. I agree is, with you. It's not the best yeah. trade. The best trade I've got is number three. So that's number one. That's getting more shooting to the Pels. All right, the next trade, Zion Williamson to Miami for Kyle Lowry's expiring, Nikola Jovic, and a mass of picks that start from 2027. So this is, if the Pels wanted to reset, get Kyle Lowry in for one year, play the point guard, move CJ to the two, you get a rookie in Nikola Jovic, who I don't think will do much for him, and you get draft equity down the line. Uh, 10 seconds on that one. I don't like that trade, but I just wanted to see Zion in Miami, so he'd have to get fit real quick. Oh, hey, culture. First yeah. things first, Alex. That, yeah. That's the one thing that stands out when you mention about that trade. I think Pat Riley would be absolutely pulling no punches with Zion. He might die. He... Zion Williamson might die in the in preseason. <laughs> hey, look, look what happened with Alonzo Mourning when he got traded from Charlotte to Miami and Riley played such an integral role with Alonzo's basically back to the basket and face-up game as well. So you can see that happening potentially. Okay, so my favorite trade that I've got going on is Zion Williamson to the Toronto Raptors for a defensive package around OG Ananobi, Thad Young, one of the minimums like Christian Coloco, um, a two-way player like Javon Fubin Limity, who was really good defensively in the Summer League, and a pick. Or you can throw Chris Boucher in there as well as OG. So you're getting, if you're the Pelicans, OG Ananobi good for 15 to 20 points a night. Defensive, you're leaning into that identity. Everyone on that team is dope defensively except Brandon Ingram. He's still lengthy. I think that's my favorite trade. I don't think I don't think Toronto do that. I don't think the Pels do it. I just think it's a great starting point. What's wrong with that trade? Yeah. What is wrong with that trade? I think the interesting part is right, Alex. So if Siakam is still there, then what happens to where Williamson plays? Because he doesn't play the small forward, right? He barely shoots threes. Yeah. They don't play Siakam at the five unless it's small ball, which the Raptors did at stages last season. That's where it sort of gets a bit iffy, I think. I rationalize this trading Chris works. Boucher. So you play him at the four, you play Pertle at the five, or you play Zion at the small ball five. It's iffy. I think it's interesting. And I've spent, I couldn't go to sleep last night after being at work. I was like, this is the trade I'm trying to tinker around with because Toronto are desperate to do something that makes them important again. Um, I don't think they want to trade OG, but that's a non starter if you get Zion Williamson. And there has to be picks at the end of that. Toronto have got plenty to go. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite yeah. out of those three? I think probably number two for mine, Alex. I just yeah. feel as though for Zion, if and only say if he wants a fresh start and all those sort of reported rumors and sort of that came out about him being unhappy at the Pelicans, right? If he was to really look for a clean slate to really sort of not rejuvenate his career, right? Because we've seen, of course, the mass injuries that he's already had early on since he was drafted, picked one back in 2019, is the fact that being within the Miami Heat culture as well, where they actually take no prisoners whatsoever, that's the whole mentality, the DNA, where you step onto the floor for the full 48 minutes of the game and the thing that's going to be expected of you is playing hard on both ends no matter what. And if he's just able to somehow, and he talked about it right, where it was probably after the Lakers crushing where 
they sort of took his foot a bit off the pedal, just to paraphrase in a way that probably was a little bit too relaxed. And I think if he was in that Miami situation, right, and they were really pushing him hard during the off-season to really get back into shape and perhaps maybe even trim him down to, I don't know, 265, 270 pounds or something like that. So he's at least a little bit more freer and able to move on the defensive end because that was sort of, it's always been a worry though, especially this season where it's been talked about most is defensively, teams are going after him, which is just from probably firsthand watching, never thought that was the case, but probably even after watching a few games as well and a few plays where teams will look to target him, that he is pretty susceptible though. So there's just something there to sort of maybe even think about as well for a Miami point of view, but they've they've turned guys. We've seen from undrafted players, right? They've just seamlessly fitted into the Miami Heat culture and even guys that probably weren't even maybe got second or third chance. And I think one player comes into mind. I think Chris Anderson, the Birdman, he was, I think, wavered by the Denver Nuggets and yep. Miami gave him that chance, I think, midway through our 2012-13 season and, boy, didn't the crowd love him right from the first game? So, hey. Some some opinions change very quickly, though. Thanks thanks for the Birdman reference. I haven't thought of that for a couple of years. I'm happy to think of that, Chris Anderson. All right, last couple of minutes on the uh, Brooklyn Nets. We talked offline about uh, the Indiana Pacers in their rise from last year. They were 11th out of the play-in to currently 5th in the East. And we looked around and, and you know, what other teams got some young talent that could make a move like that. And it might be the Nets. Um, they're currently in 8th place, but they're two losses out from 5th after finishing last year. In sixth, but it's a funny season last year in Brooklyn. They lost Kevin Durant, Kyrie Midgia, Harden before the year. Uh, Brooklyn are interesting. So they've got the seventh best net, seventh best net rating. Excuse me. They're on a. Uh, they've won six of their last seven. First in three point percentage, they make thirty eight point seven of them. First in rebounding, which surprised me. Uh, maybe due to Nick Claxton. Uh, third in field goal attempts. They played a slow pace as well, so none of that really makes sense in my brain. Um, the knock on them is they don't get to the free throw line very often. They're third or fourth last in free throws made and attempted. Um, they don't force a lot on the ball either. So their opponents turn the ball over only 11 times a game, which is last in the league. Then it's the third worst in steals. So like the defensive effort's kind of strange, even though you're first in rebounding. Um, and I've got a couple of critical pieces. So Mikael Bridges, everyone should probably know, 23 and a half points a game, uh, shoots 50% from the floor, basically, fills up the box sheet, can go for 40 uh, Cam Thomas, speaking of Kim Go for 40, he now averages the most on the team, 23.7, shoots 45 from the floor. Uh, they get good shooting from Spencer Dinwiddie and Lonnie Walker the fourth, particularly, is having a really good season. They both average 14.5 points. And then Nick Claxton, um, 2.5 blocks per game, uh, 12 points, almost 10 rebounds a game. Where do you want to start with Brooklyn Nets um, and what do you think might be the most impactful? Can you see them making a leap like Indiana at the back end of this year? Can they stay in fifth as well? What's going on with the uh, not the Pacers? What's going on with the Brooklyn Nets for you, Yuri? They're a very interesting team, Alex. And I think even before the season began, we sort of thought they may be one of the real unpredictable teams in the Eastern Conference, just due to the fact that not only do they have probably only just the one All Star player in Mikhail Bridges, but also just those other pieces there, like in Nick Claxton as well, who's really shown flashes of his potential as well in the defensive end and. He sort of wasn't really unknown, probably the next steps that he was going to take, but he's fully established himself as one as a very 
exceptional interior defender and paint presence as well to alter shots. So that's been working really well. Spencer Dinwiddie returning back to Brooklyn Nets and where he had some of his best years as well too has given him just that extra bit of offensive punch as well and orchestrating the offense as well, especially in the half court. So the Cam Thomas one is probably the biggest out of everything that's gone on with the Brooklyn Nets this season because I think probably us two, we agreed that there would probably at least be a maybe even 500 team, maybe a 41-41-40-42 win team this season. And at this stage, it's probably going to expectation at the moment. So with Cam Thomas Wright and his offensive exploits, we saw, of course, he missed those nine games with an ankle injury. But now it's come down to a point where Jacques Vaughan is starting him in the starting lineup with Mikhail Bridges too. And basically Cam was coming off the bench as a sixth man early on. But his offense has been too good to resist, right, Alex? And especially where it is they do play that slow style of game and it's really sort of half-court, not grinded out in the way, even though Jark does preach that on the defensive end, where Cam is able to just let fly whenever he catches the ball. And that's the thing, though. When you watch him play, just those first probably couple of seconds where he does catch it and he doesn't hesitate and lets it fly, where the opposition may be in a zone a 1-2 or, say, a 2-3 zone, and then they just don't rotate quickly back to cover Cam Thomas's shot because it's not, I wouldn't say it's a super quick release shot, but it's a deadly three-point shot he does have, and that's where it provides so much of a punch for the Nets as well. And putting him with Mikhail Bridges as well, even though, yes, both guys aren't sort of super strong facilitators at this point as well, and that can change in time, but... It's more the fact as well that not only from downtown, but he's able to get to the basket pretty much every single time where he's able to get those couple of steps in front of his defender and really creates a lot of headaches for teams in the interior. So I think it's been a real sort of good mix and match, I think, for the Nets with those two there. Because when was probably the last time, apart from Kyrie and James Harden and Kevin Durant, those three averaging 20 points in that short tenure with the Brooklyn Nets, can't even remember the last time where... The Nets, even back to the New Jersey days, had two players average 20-plus points per game in a season, Alex. That's really interesting. I, I reckon they might have got close with Spencer Dinwiddie and D'Angelo Russell back in that hodgepodge, I want to say 2016, 2017. I could be completely wrong. Uh, you can fact-check that while I'm talking. But that, Yeah, 2018-19. There you go. Two whole seasons off. That might have been close <laughs> off the top of memory. That was uh, D'Angelo Russell's all-star season. Spencer Dinwiddie got traded at the end of that season based on his play, I think, as well. I could be off by two whole years again. Don't listen to me. Uh, it's unfortunate for the Nets that they don't have a healthy and interesting Ben Simmons. I think even bringing him off the bench solves a lot of their defensive woes. Like, um, they're not a fast team. He plays at a fast pace. Uh, they don't get a lot of steals. He's got long arms in transition and passing lanes. Um, maybe we see him at the back end of last year, but, you know, I'm not counting him for anything. That'd be just a nice little addition if he ends up being okay. Yeah, back back injuries are pretty painful though, Alex. And again, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about right Dwight Howard and his back surgery and having it undergone in April 2012 and just the amount of sheer work they did right behind the scenes just to get his back right and be ready for opening night against the Dallas Mavericks all those years ago was, it was pretty incredible, right? Because that can be career-threatening if not, treated properly and depending on the severity of back injuries as well and his back injury wasn't just 
your normal back injury in itself, Alex. Basically, a nerve was pinching right down to his calf, where to the point he couldn't even do a calf raise. That's what I think Dr. Watkins told him in the Dwight Howard documentary that they released seven years ago, is that if you can't do a calf raise, you're going to have to have surgery. So it's sort of the realisation did hit pretty hard for Dwight at that time that he had to undergo surgery for him to get back onto the basketball court and at least be... Well, he wasn't. He was never close to 100% during that first tenure at the Lakers, but he was at least probably, I don't know, 75 80% probably at maximum, and still he was able to produce those incredible numbers right that season. So, yeah, hopefully for Ben Simmons as well, that sort of that was it. I think it was a back impingement or something like that. It he's, doesn't yeah, sort of linger had on. all sorts of issues. Um, it's yeah, another it thing linger we should probably mention just, just to watch Bradley Beal's recovery as well. In Phoenix, he's got uh, nerve impingement issues going down to his legs and hasn't been playing. That's where we'll leave it for today, Yuri. I appreciate you coming on just after the end of the tournament game. We barely got enough time to get the stats and digest. So, appreciate you coming on. Uh, We'll be back next week with a regular edition of the show. I think we're going to change the format very slightly to be a bit more fun uh, for you and the boys uh, competing. So, appreciate it, and I'll speak to you when I see you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Great chatting.